0: whether it's your agents you work with in your area your wholesaling your biggest buyers you work with hedge funds like you can't just sell deals to the same five people you have to build a buyers list every single day pretty much every month we're right around 200 new qualified buyers in our buyers list, so you have to keep doing that you know buyers fall off they go on vacation they stop investing they move into a different market Like it's ever changing. There's always new investors. And if you just sell to the same five guys, they're gonna know that they're gonna beat you up on price and you got no leg to stand on because you got no process and no way of selling it to anybody else. So you gotta spread a wide net in dispositions and always build a buyer's list every single day.
1: All right, you guys, welcome back to the Light It Up podcast. If you're new to this channel and you want to know everything there is about making money in real estate, selling sales skills, building your business or investing, then subscribe below, tap the bell for notifications so you can be the first to know
2: what makes our great guests so successful. Yep. Let's talk about adding leverage. So we've been getting a lot of calls of people asking us how we've hired virtual assistants to scale and leverage our business. So we've opened up our playbook to all of you. If you're looking to add leverage in your business, whether it's administrative support, ISA, outbound callers, go to adleverage.com and they'll be there to help you staffing your team. All right, guys. Excited about today's guest. We have with us Tony
1: Mont. Tony, thank you so much for spending some time with us today
0: yeah man thank you thank you for having me i know uh mr eric klein my partner was on he referred me over here said you guys were great he had a good time on the podcast so uh happy to join you
1: we did have a good time with him yeah we were yeah there was some grunting and, and yelling and
0: <laughs> yeah and,
1: uh, all yeah sorts it's funny
0: because of- his his office is on the other end of where i'm at in my office yeah but even if i'm in my office with my door closed and there's a whole sales floor in between us and he's in his office with his door closed I could still hear him screaming, I can hear him right now. <laughs> he is, he's talking to somebody on the phone or he's on a Zoom and he's screaming at the top of his lungs. So, yeah, he's a loud, boisterous man, but Good I love him. him. Yeah,
2: we'll, Love it. We'll put a plug real quick in here for anybody who wants to watch the Eric Line episode and now let's just jump into it. But first, let's do the lightning round. All right. Am I going first? Mm-hmm. All right.
1: What important truth do very few people agree with on you?
0: Important truth that few people agree with on me? That is a weird question, but I'll answer it to the best uh, of my ability.
2: Agree with you on.
0: Agree with me on. So So a truth (laughs) that people agree with me on. Yeah. Let me just say this like I'm a big proponent of like just hard work and discipline. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's not a popular truth, but it's something I talk about all the time. Where like, everybody's looking for an easy way out, a a magic pill. Mm -hmm. What do you do? How do you get in shape? How do you get up early? Why? You know, how do you take a cold shower every day? How is it you work 50, 60 hours a week? Like, I don't want to do that, you know? And I'm like, Nobody wants to do that. like in our nature as humans. Yeah, I mean, I want to go hang out in the desert, drive my off road truck. I want to go to the beach. I want to I want to hang out, too. But I know in order to do those things, it's delayed gratification. You have to put in all the hard work to do them. Mm. So when people ask me like, oh, how do I get in shape? How do I do this? The truth is, it's just hard work. You got to be super disciplined. You got to eat good. You got to, you know, exercise every single day. You can't, you know, drink a lot, you know, and it's it's something people hate to agree with, but they have to because nobody's ever had a magic pill for for being successful. It's just hard work.
1: Yeah, I think most of those people know what they need to do. They just don't want to they don't want to hear it or they don't want to do it. That's
0: the thing. It's like, you know, they want to do everything. They just don't do it. You know, it's like you hear people say it all the time where they're like, oh, I I woke up this morning. I went for a run. I I worked out. I worked. I did this. I made all these calls today in the office. And it's like, I didn't want to do it. It's like, no, you wanted to do it. It was just hard. Yeah. Like you wanted to do it or else you wouldn't do it. You want to be successful. So you got to do the things that it takes to be successful.
2: Yeah. Love that. All right. If you can go back in time, what's one thing you tell your teenage self?
0: Oh, geez. Not to meet Eric Klein. (laughs) 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 <laughs>
2: <laughs>
0: We're staying on the Eric subject. <laughs> I'm just totally kidding. We, me and Eric have known each other for a long time. We used to get in a lot of trouble in our early 20s. My teenage years was really like around 16, 17 is when I started getting into a lot of trouble. And I wish I could have told myself, hey, if you continue down this path, you know, you're going to end up in jail. Your life's going to get really hard for, for a lot of years. And you can bypass that by not drinking too much, not doing drugs and not hanging out with lunatics. And mm-hmm. uh, I did all those things instead. And uh, it got me locked up for a little bit. And, you know, that kind of changed the trajectory of my life. So maybe everything happens for a reason, but I think I always had the potential in me. I just didn't have a lot of guidance. So mm-hmm. I just needed somebody to, to help me guide, guide me along the way. So maybe the real answer is just I would I, Should have told myself, you know, get a mentor, get somebody that can, you know, control you and your energy and your brain and make sure you go in the right path instead of the wrong path.
1: Hmm. Good answer. Good answer. What chance encounter changed your life forever?
0: Chance encounter changed my life forever. I will say that when I so I grew up in Rockford, Illinois, I was an electrician there and I moved to Chicago for a little bit. And then I got into some trouble did, you know, spent a little time in county jail, had a trial. And then once the state told me, hey, you're free to go, you're off probation. Uh, we can't, you know, handcuff you to the state or the county anymore. I literally packed my bags, went to California. And the only reason I picked San Diego was because it was the furthest place from where I was standing while I was looking at a map. Mm. And I was like, how can I get as far away from everybody as possible that I know? And I went out to California, I couldn't get a job, I had a horrible arrest record, I had some misdemeanor uh, convictions on my record, I was in a rough, rough spot in my life. And I answered an ad on Craigslist back when like, I don't know if you can still do this, but you used to be able to get gigs on there, meaning like, Mm. week or month long jobs, like paid cash. So I, I started looking on Craigslist. There was this gig on there. This guy had just opened a bicycle shop at the beach in Pacific Beach. He's like, I need somebody here every morning at like 6 a.m. You got to build 10 beach cruisers. I'll give you a hundred bucks cash, you know, five days a week. And I was like, I need $500 a week. I can build beach cruisers, I'm sure. I've never built one, but I can do whatever, you know, mechanically. So I uh, went in there. I was like there an hour before he told me to be. He got in. I was the first person that, that was there for the interview, called him, you know, the rest of the day, telling him to hire me and finally he hired me. And that really changed everything for me professionally. Stopped trying to do construction. I stuck with uh, the bike shop. I ended up uh, being partners with that guy, Scott Crampton. Shout out to Scott. Um, was partners with him for 13 years in the bike business. We built multiple retail shops all over, you know, San- Southern California, we started direct importing bikes out of China. We went over to China, and uh, that really changed everything for me. It taught me everything about entrepreneurship and being cool. a business owner and growing teams and sales and everything, awesome. and then that kind of went into what I do now, which is wholesaling. That's,
2: That's awesome. Wicked, man. That's a good story. Yeah. Tony, what's one thing you regret not doing when you were younger?
0: One thing I regret not doing when I was younger? Um, probably... I'm going to say something kind of dumb, but like my grandparents spoke Italian and I never learned it and I, I could have done better of trying to get them to speak it to me mm. more than they did and try to learn it. And same with like Spanish, like I living in San Diego so long, like I, I heard Italian a lot growing up. So picking up Spanish was pretty easy for me, but I'm not consistent with it, so I, it comes and goes. Yeah. Um, but I wish I would have learned a second language.
2: Hmm.
1: I think that's something I could. Do you speak Italian? No, mm. no nope. mm. shame. You're true You generation- know me for this long. You think I had a hidden? I language? don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's,
0: a, it's a weird generational thing. Like my grandparents came over here when they were little, and they like their parents didn't speak the lang- English, yeah. but like they were so proud. Like my grandparents you know raised American flag every single day of their lives at their house they were super happy to be in America they didn't want us speaking Italian they didn't want us visiting Sicily or Italy like they're like no you're American you speak English you yeah, know cool. they were traditional in the fact like we went to their house every Sunday we had dinner every Sunday all that all the traditional Italian stuff but just like with the language and like visiting the old country they didn't want any of that so it was just kind of weird. You know, my dad understood it, spoke it a little bit. They would speak a little bit of Italian to us and we would understand it. But, you know, it's not like we were able to to speak it back to them. So it's just kind yeah. of weird generationally uh, with them because yeah. you see, you know, Latinos come over here. The whole family speaks Spanish like they're keeping it going. Yeah. You know, I wish I wish they did that back, you know, in my grandparents generation from from Italian.
1: Well, it's one of those things when you're young, you know, like.
2: When you're a kid, you can learn like three languages at at a time. True. I just feel bad for both of you because you'll never know what it feels like to talk shit about somebody else in front of you in a different language. It's like the best thing in the world. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Even just with real estate,
1: like I wish I could speak Spanish. Yeah. I mean, I can understand a little bit of it, but I'm not fluent by any means. But yeah, the Spanish that I remember is from one teacher in like sixth grade. And I took Spanish for probably six years after that, but but mm-hmm. didn't learn anything from those other teachers. But that one teacher in sixth grade that I hated the most. Stuck with you. She was the one who just made it, me. It's
0: one of those things like I like the best my Spanish ever was, was probably. Oh, God, me and Eric went down to Mexico, probably on his like 35th or 36th birthday. So this might have been six or seven years ago. And at the time I was taking a Spanish class at City College in San Diego. I was doing the Duolingo on my phone. I was taking private lessons and my Spanish had gotten so good. Like I could go to Mexico. I was translating for Eric the whole time. I was speaking full conversations. And I remember being like, man, your Spanish is so good right now. Keep it up. And yeah. I didn't, and then you lose it. Like if it's not your first yeah. language, it's so it just goes away. Yeah. So I'm in the like one of my goals this year is to get back into it. So I've been consistent with learning every day again. So hopefully, uh, hopefully
2: I fix that. Sweet man, there you go. Let's jump right into it then. So, Tony, can you share with us your role in TLC Homebuyers and everything that you do there?
0: Yeah. So. I was on uh, JR Clutch's uh, podcast a a few months ago, and I was explaining to him what I do. And he's like, oh, you're like a floor general. And I was like, yeah, that's a good term for it. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm on the floor all day, every day, stand up desk right in front of my team. So for the most part, Eric handles our closers and acquisitions. Uh, He trains them, he runs comps for them, and uh, he takes over their calls for them, all that. So he's in front of that team. My team is disposition. So as we lock up contracts on the acquisition side, I have a whole process on how we assign those contracts to investors. So we have an entire sales process in dispositions. I have three Dispo agents and a Dispo assistant. You know, right in front of me. So I'm helping them all day. Um, I'm taking over calls. I'm helping with buyers. I'm helping with sellers. Any issues, and then transactions is to my left. And when they come into a situation they can't figure out, they come to me and pick my brain about it, and I usually can find a solution for it. So, for me, I really like it because acquisitions comes to me with issues they, they need help with. Transactions comes to me with issues they need help with, and I'm helping my team as well. So I feel like I've learned a lot not just for dispositions, but for the entire, you know, wholesale space of I've learned a lot in every department so I can help as many people as possible, yeah. not just with my teams, but with other teams as well in my community.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because there's in every business, there's the three pillars, the attract, convert, deliver. You're literally in the, the convert part of that pillar, right? So it's like you can get a shit kind of or you can get a good deal coming in from acquisitions, but then there's a bunch of like red lining or red tape around it and you have to sort it through to find a way to to dispo it. Um, And if transactions has an issue, you have to always find another way to creatively make it work with the, the end use buyer.
0: Yeah. I've definitely created that role for myself where I don't know if it's like this controlling piece of me or what it is, but when a deal, especially a big deal is about ready to fall apart because of a major problem we can't overcome. I'm the first person to be like, let me just take that on. I'll figure it out. Like I have the confidence in figuring it out because no stone will be unturned with me trying to do that. And I've saved a lot of deals, you know, for the company that got towards the end. And we're like, man, this is a seventy thousand dollar deal. I don't think it's going to go through because of this, that the other. Mm -hmm. And then I just start trying to figure it out, make phone calls, people I know in the industry um, and just brainstorm and come up with creative ways to get deals done. And it's really helped and it's, you know, I've done that consistently now for a few years and now I'm just really confident in it. So when we do have a problem, I'm like the first one that's like, let me take it on, let me figure it out.
1: Yeah. How was the team set up four or five years ago? I mean, right now, obviously well, you guys- we've only
0: been doing this for two and a half years. Two... Well, almost three years. Okay. So yeah, so we're we're on year three right now. It'll be three years in May since we've been in business. So take so, us back like two and a half years ago yeah so it was literally i mean i was out in san diego eric was down in uh, fort lauderdale he moved back to illinois for a minute thinking he wanted to you know live up there and quickly realized that that was a horrible decision like (laughs) i told him but i was in san diego i was still running the bike shop and he had this idea of wholesaling he got it from a friend of his a friend of ours and he he called me about it and he's like hey i think this is a winner Like, would you want to get involved in it? I said, absolutely. I'm ready for a change. And he got some leads coming in. He started getting people on the phone. He started logging up contracts. He was using another company to dispo those deals. And then eventually he's like, hey, me and Shyla, his wife, our our other business partner, he's like, we're going to Raleigh, North Carolina. We're going to open an office there. We want you to join us. So I just packed everything and moved out kind of blindly without any real business plan, to be honest, Yeah. and came out here. And for the first few weeks, it was just me and Eric. And he was in the back office just locking up deals. I would sit with him, listen to him for a couple of days. And then the third day I was there, I got on the phones and tried locking up deals. And literally the first call I ever made in wholesaling, I locked a deal up. Nice. Um, and after that, it was like, all right, well, we don't need two closers and no dispo. Like if if Eric's the man, he's the sales goat, he's locking all these deals up. No need for me to do so. So I just took on the responsibility of, of dispositions and trying to figure out how to how to sell these deals. And then we just slowly grew from there, you know, hiring acquisitions, training them. Once the deal flow was enough, hired dispositions. And right now, Eric's got four closers, soon to be five next week. Nice. And I got three dispo and a dispo assistant. So we're gonna consistently this year, our goal is to have six closers, three dispo, a dispo assistant, and uh, keep cranking them
2: out. Wow, sweet man.
1: So let's is it fair to say that three years ago you didn't have any real estate experience? Zero. <laughs> but like you said, you had business experience, entrepreneurial like uh... Yeah,
0: and I just have a motor, man. I yeah. just I've been a hard worker my whole life. I've excelled in everything I've ever done. And I didn't know it, but I ended up being really good at sales when I started uh, the bike business. Like, and I always attribute that to, you know, coming from an Italian family where everybody's talking shit. You got to be quick witted, you know, yeah. you got to come back with them. You're always built, you know, building rapport and relationships and all that. And working construction for so long, it's like you're on a construction site. That's all you do all day is talk, you right. know, and being from the Midwest. That's why I always say people from the Midwest are so warm and nice and personable because for six months, you can't go outside. It's freaking freezing. <laughs> so you spend most of those months inside playing cards, having a beer, shooting pool and bullshitting with your friends. So yep. uh, I'm a talker man. and when I got into the bike business, I had been doing construction for a long time. I'm like, I don't know how to sell bikes. You know, I'm selling pink beach cruisers <laughs> in California, you <laughs> like who am I? But it just came supernatural to me just talking to people and, and then I came up with, you know, these these sales techniques and process out there. You know, we sold, you know, I said 50,000 the other day, but I think it was around like 35,000 bikes in uh, wow. 13 years out of one primary bike shop. So wow, uh, sold a lot of bikes. Yeah. And it's just uh, it's funny because when I came over to this space, I work with Eric every day, all the sales stuff he was training. I was like, oh, that's exactly what I was doing person to person at at my shop. I didn't even know there was a name for it. I just Mm kind of trial and error figured it out. So coming over to this space, yeah, I had had a lot of sales experience and confidence knowing I could, you know, build a business from the ground up.
2: How did you dispo your first deal when you took that hat on?
0: The first deal I ever dispoed, it was a Cincinnati, Ohio deal. And it was a weird property. It was a old farmhouse built in like 1890. And it was on this really cool hillside that overlooked a river. And we had no idea what this property was worth. I remember sitting with Eric. He's like, dude, I don't know. Should we even lock this thing up? Like, what is this? And I'm like, just lock it up. Like, I need deals. I need to figure this out. So I remember we were on the fence of even getting it under contract. But he did. And back then, I didn't have a buyer's list. Like, I didn't have investor lift. I didn't have the MLS. I didn't have any buyers. You know, I just started off. So... All I did back then was cold call cash buyers and post properties on Facebook groups. So that first property. By the way, that's what
1: that's what most dispo people do.
0: That's (laughs) what they do to this day. Yeah, exactly. Right right thing. Yeah. So I ended up posting this one on a Facebook group for a Cincinnati, Ohio Real Estate, you know, group. And somebody reached out to me, ended up getting them out there to walk the property. And got it under contract, closed it out. We made forty five grand on that, nice. that first one. And I found that buyer off of, off of a Facebook group.
1: And you're like, shit! I would have to sell how many bikes to make forty five <laughs> grand?
0: Bikes to make this, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It would take me a month to make that.
1: Well, that was like our first wholesale deal. I think the, the first, well, first one we ever did was a thirty grand spread, but our second one was like a hundred and forty. Mm. It was a big one. That's a banger. And and we're yeah. both real estate agents and our average commission check is uh, 12,000, let's say. So that was 12 deals in one. And once yeah. we closed that one, I was like, yeah, <laughs> I don't know about that residential real estate business anymore. I was like, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm got my blinders on and I'm going wholesale, wholesale all, all the way. The way right? yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of how I felt when I got into this space. Cause you know, I made good money in the bike business, but it wasn't like you know, crazy money. It was just like money where I didn't ever have to budget for anything. I could travel whenever I wanted. I could buy whatever I wanted, you know, but, you know, I wasn't saving a ton of money, I should say. But when I got into this space, I was like, well, it's the same amount of work, just, you know, quadruple the money.
1: Yeah. That's what I've said about about being a real estate agent, converting into a wholesaling business is you're still hunting for deals every day right as a as an right. agent we're hunting for listings or mm-hmm. we're hunting for buyers right mm-hmm. we would prefer the listing side instead of just listing the property you just put it under contract right yeah exactly and if yeah. there's not enough spread then then maybe you list it or you yeah. give it to somebody on your team to list it
0: exactly so. yeah it's like it was one of those things too coming over the space i'm like damn i wish i would have started doing this you know 15 years ago yeah. instead of you know at thir- i was 37 when i got over here now i'm 40 but It's like, where would I be at now? But, you know, the the universe, you know, has a plan for us all, I guess.
1: So what I think is really cool about you guys and, you know, compared to a lot of other wholesalers is you guys are doing this nationwide, right? Like you mentioned before, you guys are based in North Carolina and the deal, the first deal that you locked up was in Cincinnati, Ohio. So, I mean, me personally, there's times where I'm doing comps on a a property that's, I don't know, 10 miles from my office and I'm still struggling. Mm -hmm. I've been in the business 16, 17 years and I'm still struggling to come up with comps just because it's a unique property. Nothing's really sold. That's like it. It's got more bedrooms than the other, whatever it is. And I'm still struggling with comps. I mean, talk to us about how you guys are able to to put these properties under contract in markets that, you know, you don't really know that much about.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about virtually wholesaling, because once you come up with a process, you can repeat it in any market that you're in. Me and Eric primarily are the ones that run comps in our business right now. And when you do that, you know, 30 times a day for two and a half years, you get really good at it and you get really good at seeing all these nuances instead of just being in one market and all these cookie cutter neighborhoods. It's like we get Properties very rural. We get them at the beach. We get them in the mountains. We get them in farm towns. So you got to get really creative with the way you're looking at comps and cash buys and all that. But that's the beautiful thing about about virtually wholesaling. You can, you know, shut down a market today and jump into another one tomorrow. Just buy the data and you can do deals there. So the the thing is too, like you can take a little bit more risk when you're running the comps too, because. What's the worst that can happen if you get this property under contract It's not a deal? Mm. You know you have an inspection period where you can cancel. So we're not taking huge risks where we're like there's no way we're getting rid of this deal. but there's sometimes where it's like, all right, there's this one comp that sold a year ago that makes this maybe a deal like and there's nothing for sale in this area. It's rural. like I think we can make this happen. So let's just lock it up. If we go through our process for three weeks and we can't find a buyer, we tell the seller, hey, this just isn't a good deal for us, and we can back out of it.
2: Yeah. Comparing it from the way that you guys started from the beginning, how has the dispo process changed now? Oh God,
0: 100, 180 degrees. So, you know, we got into this space when the market was still going up and you could roll out of bed and sell a deal, make twenty five grand on it. Like it was all the big buyers were on everybody's list they couldn't buy enough properties they knew even if they got a slight discount on a deal after they rehab it and the time it takes to get it on the market it's going to be worth five to ten percent more anyway Mm -hmm. so the market was just going crazy so um, we got into space at that moment so it was pretty easy to dispo a deal like i could put it on a facebook group i could call five of the guys that were buying from me in that area And they would buy it they'd have a buddy that would buy it so when the market shifted what happened was first of all my whole dispo team got up and left because they're like well this is way harder than we thought it was going to be like we're out of here and uh, it really forced me to get a really good process dialed in it's when we started doing you know kpis for dispo and just dove deeper into the daily process of a deal where something, an action has to be taken on this deal every day where it's reaching more people. And one of the tactics we were using for rural deals was listing them on the flat fee MLS. Mm-hmm. So like if a deal just didn't have enough cash comps where we couldn't find investors out there, we would list them on the flat fee MLS, and now we had agents looking at these deals and calling us like, "Hey, I got a cash buyer for this deal. Pay me some commissions," and we were able to get rid of some rural deals that way. Mm-hmm. So after or if nobody's calling,
1: then you know that the, that you know you're not in the right price point.
0: Exactly. Yeah, and then you can lower it. So when the market shifted, I got into the office. I was the only one on the dispo team at the time because everybody left, mm-hmm. and it just like dawned on me, and I was like. Well, if we're using the Flat Fee MLS for rural deals and none of our buyers are buying our, our deals anymore, there we had like 20 something sitting. I was like, why don't we just get extensions on all these and list all of them on the MLS? And that's what we did. We spent a couple of days listing every property and they just started selling like hotcakes again. So where everybody else was like, shit, wholesaling's dead. None of our buyers, none of the hedge funds are buying anymore. We just pivoted to list everything on the MLS. And now all these new investors that didn't get opportunities for the last five years because everybody was outbidding them, they weren't on anybody's buyer's list. They were using agents to find MLS deals. The MLS deals were going over asking from big buyers. So these guys could never get a deal. Now they could actually get into real estate. So they were buying deals. You know, new investors were buying our deals using agents. We were paying a little bit of commissions, but they were paying higher than anybody because... Our you know our main flippers were like, hey, I got 20 properties, I got to list and sell before I start buying again because I don't know what the hell is going to happen with this market now that you know interest rates doubled. Yeah. So they all put everything on pause, and the new guys were like, you know, these new guys were you know they have nine to five jobs, they're not looking to make a career out of it. They're like, well, shit, if I can make 20 grand on a flip twice a year, that's just money in my pocket. Sure. So they weren't trying to get these things so discounted. They were they weren't being greedy. They're like shit, I can make 20 grand on this thing. I'll pay your price for it. And that's what happened. So we still do that to this day. Not every property, but a lot of our deals, we we still find new investors on the MLS.
1: Let's take a step back for a second, because I think there's some people that are probably watching this saying, wait a second, how do you put a property you don't own on the MLS? So, I mean, I, I know the answer to that, but I'll let you in your contract talk to us about the language you have in there.
0: Yeah, there's a pre-marketing clause in our contract stating that we um, are allowed to list this on the multiple listing service on certain websites, uh, just like Zillow um, to pre-market the deal before it's closed. And they also sign a attorney and fact document. And then we can sign on behalf of the seller, any, you know, MLS documents. So disclosures and, and listing agreements and all that we can sign, you know, Joe seller, you know, Tony Mont AIF, you know, uh, TLC homebuyers on the documents and you know list them um not being the owner of the property and it's perfectly legal you know there's some different rules per different mls's that you got to comply with mm-hmm. um but the sellers are happy just to sell their home and you know we're happy to help them get them sold
1: Yeah, because i think that's something that some people would be like wait a second you can't just do that. list a property you don't own you can't but,
0: do that yeah but- it's it's funny, too, because the number one question, like I've been talking about the flat fee now for like a year. And it's like, I'm, you know, people like know me as this flat fee MLS guy. But people that reach out to me, their first question is, well, what happens when the seller sees the deal on the MLS? Don't they want to cancel? It's like, no, if you have the right rebuttals to these objections yeah. and, you know, make sense of it, then you're up front with the seller, first of all, on the acquisition side, that this will be pre-marketed there's very little pushback.
1: It's all mindset, right? It's all mindset. It's like a realtor saying like, um, what do you say to your seller when your seller says, I want you to do an open house every single weekend? It's like, I just do it. It's like, well, no, if you tell the seller, Mm -hmm. if you have the, the mindset and the right response on how to handle that question of Mr. And Mrs. Seller, it doesn't make sense to do an open house every single weekend. And, you know, we may do one in the beginning or whatever, but you know, like people are so scared to because they, they oftentimes don't have a lot of transactions. They're scared to lose that one that they have. Yeah, so they, they don't learn how to handle the, the objection.
0: Yeah. And yeah. they they get so scared about these objections. Like you have to go in like so deep into an explanation. Most of these like quote unquote objections are just questions that the client's asking you in yeah. any sales, right? It's like if they ask you a question and you start thinking for the seller of like, oh, now they're upset or now they're going to not trust me or whatever, exactly. then you're going to just, you know, spit out too many words and confuse them even more. Yes. And so and it's think- like, just treat it like a question. Like, you know, why is my property listed on the MLS? Oh, just because, we you know, just like when we went over the contract, we pre-market these properties as they're under contract to make our process more efficient. So we don't get bottlenecked at closing. We're trying to find an end buyer that'll buy the deal after we close with you. Yeah. That's it. Yeah, short and and simple. Yeah,
1: exactly. No, I love that. That's great. And, and you know, I I, again, I'll give you guys so much credit for being able to do it remotely. It's like I'm going to try to explain this the best way I can. You know, a lot of times when let's just say if you lock up a property to wholesale in Mm -hmm. your own market, you don't necessarily have to run over there for the showings. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily have to run over there when you do the photography. You don't necessarily. But a lot of times we get caught up in the process and we do these things because, oh, well, I'll go on my way home or it's only a mile away from the office or it's two miles. But then, like, let's just say you go on vacation and you have to have somebody here remotely being able to do all that stuff for you. It mm-hmm. still gets done. The steel deal still goes through. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times we get caught up in, in all this extra exercise because we're here. You guys being so far away from a lot of these properties you're selling, you have to be resourceful, right? So I imagine there's times where you're like, shit, like literally my hands are tied. I don't, I can't run over to this property in Cincinnati, Ohio and figure out why the guy can't get into the property, right? So you have to like be extra resourceful. It's like, I need to find a contractor over there. I need to find a locksmith. I need to find this. And, you know, I just give you guys credit for that because it's, you have to think outside the box that much more.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. Like in wholesaling in general, you got to think outside the box a lot, you know, because it's it's a lot of creative, you know, ways to to do real estate. And I'll give a shout out to the transaction team and Shyla because they handle a lot of that back end stuff, where we got to schedule photos or we need a locksmith, we need a clean out. You know, the the house is boarded up. We got to find somebody with with power tools that can go take photos and take a piece of plywood off of a, off of a door yeah. like they handle all that stuff, you know, and they keep a organized sheet of all the people we've worked with in these areas. So when we get another property there, they know who to call. They know who to trust to get out there, get photos, you know, do whatever we got to do to make sure this process mm-hmm. goes smooth for us and dispositions when we're trying to get a buyer out there to walk it.
2: Yeah. Tony, walk us through some of the mistakes that people should avoid that you learned the hard way.
0: Yeah. In wholesaling.
2: In this position. um, Yeah.
0: Yeah. So just uh, putting too many eggs in one basket. Like I Mm -hmm. remember when like the hedge funds were buying like crazy and everybody was just salivating at these hedge funds. Like they were just being order takers for hedge funds. Hedge funds would say, hey, these this is the criteria I want and this is what I'm willing to pay. And a lot of these wholesale companies strictly bought data strictly for the hedge funds, nobody else. And they were just taking orders. They would get a property. They would just simply ask the seller, what do you want for the property? 250 grand. Okay. I'll call you right back. They'd call the hedge fund. What would you pay for this? 270. Okay, cool. Yep, I'll give you 250. Here's the property at 270, mm. and you're not gain. That's not a skill set. That is, you know, a computer could do that. Yeah. So they weren't, you know, developing a good sales process. They weren't getting good on the phones. They were weren't getting good at comping or building teams. And I remember when I heard got wind of all this, I was like, man, this is like a deck of cards, a house of cards for these guys. Mm-hmm. Like, if the hedge funds stop buying, what are you going to do? So we were never, never heavy in the hedge fund game. And because of that, when the hedge funds stopped buying completely, we didn't panic because we're like, well, we only sell two deals a month to hedge funds anyway. Who cares? We buy all this other data and have all these other buyers. So whether it's your agents you work with in your area, your wholesaling, your biggest buyers you work with, hedge funds, like you can't just sell deals to the same five people. You have to build a buyer's list every single day. In our office, we're adding buyers every day. Right now we've added uh, seven, eight, nine, ten. We've added over ten buyers today to our buyers list. And pretty much every month we're right around 200 new qualified buyers in our buyers. list. So you have to keep doing that. You know, buyers fall off. They go on vacation. They stop investing. They move into a different market. Like it's ever changing. There's always new investors. And if you just sell to the same five guys, they're gonna know that they're gonna beat you up on price and you got no leg to stand on because yeah. you got no process and no way of selling it to anybody else. So yeah. you gotta spread a wide net in dispositions and always build a buyer's list every single day.
1: We were always taught, like in as real estate agents, when you're hunting for business, your business needs to come from at least different like four different sources, right? Like expireds let's say for sale by owner, past clients and probate right mm-hmm. so that if the market changes and there's less expired you're not it doesn't impact your business because you've got three other sources it should be like a table there's four legs without one of those legs the table is not supported so I imagine it's the same thing in dispo right you got to have multiple different sources in case one dries up like the hedge fund
0: of course yeah and, and there's different platforms like we if we solely just sold deals off of our buyers list in the CRM that we have, we would sell maybe half our deals, you know. But because we sell not only to our qualified buyers we've talked to that in our CRM, but we also pull cash buyer data on every single deal and and call those new buyers on every deal to to get them and our buyers to sell them the deal. We have Investor Lift, which is a huge platform for dispositions, tons of buyers on there that we send send the deals to, and we list a lot of the properties on the Flat Fee MLS, and every single month. You know, the percentages change on which platform works the best for selling deals, depending on our markets and, and what the market is doing. But every single month, a deal gets sold from one of those platforms yeah. and, or multiple in, on, on those platforms. So it's like, all right, would those deals get canceled? Maybe not, but mm-hmm. they definitely wouldn't have gone for the price they went for because our highest offer was a buyer off the MLS as opposed to a buyer in our CRM. So you might have gotten rid of it, but your assignment fee would have been a lot lower. So, yeah, you got to have, you know, all those different strategies to get rid of a deal.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Have you figured out a way to close with a buyer from the MLS that's not cash? That would be financing?
0: Yeah. So we'll do like I mean, you guys have heard of novations before. Mm -hmm, Of course. So we'll do some novation deals, um, which is an easier process to then find a buyer using a lender and not using an assignment contract. But even if you are wholesaling a deal with an assignment contract on the MLS and somebody comes with a conventional loan, if that lender does allow you to double close, a lot of times you can just double close that transaction. So you don't have to assign it. Mm -hmm. You could just close on your purchase agreement with the seller and then simultaneously close with the buyer if they allow that, if their lender allows that. So you gotta be in direct communication with the broker and the lender Mm -hmm. to make sure everybody's on the same page for that. But you can double close those deals.
2: That's a good question. Is there a way, like, let's say you're in you, you, the property's acquired and it's a wholesale intent and it turns into innovation. What's that conversation like with the seller?
0: Yeah, so we just did one of those uh, last month where we had a property that was in you know really decent shape, but it was in an area that there wasn't a lot of invest investors out there. There wasn't a lot of homes being flipped. It was a little more rural. And the house was in, you know, livable shape where somebody, it really was a house for an end buyer. And the price we were looking for, um, it was really an end buyer price. It wasn't, there was no real room in it for an investor. We kind of messed, messed up the comps on that deal on the front end when we locked it up. So we just called the seller and we said, hey, we can either get a huge reduction on the price because there's no room to make any money on this investment, or we can keep the price the same. We're just going to need a little bit more time to close the deal. So we ended up pitching her that way of, you know, what's more important, like the time or the money. And she's like, well, I want what we agreed on. And we said, we can give that to you. Um, We're just going to need to sign another contract and do this uh, uh, 60 days down the road. Um, She agreed to that. We found an agent, got it listed. Um, It just got listed, I think, last week. And uh, we're starting to get calls on it.
1: Sweet, sweet. Talk to us about the different. Yeah, you said you have three Dispo agents on your team. Or dispo mm-hmm. managers. Yep. How do you allocate deals to them? Is there one is it just like levels of experience? Do you sign up kind of give this guy one and then you know the next guy gets the next one? Or are they geographically. There's
0: some nuances. Yeah, there's some nuances to it. I didn't want to do it geographically, really, because like we all share a buyer's list and I want everybody familiar with with, with every uh every market we're in. So really the way it, it goes is like there's 31 deals in our dispo bucket right now. So everybody's got about 10 deals, okay? And like how quickly you sell your deals means you're gonna get the next one. Mm. So say, you know, King on my team assigns two deals today. Now he's at eight deals and the other two are at 10 each. The next two deals that come over, he gets. Cause he assigned two, so he deserves the next ones in line. Mm-hmm. So the quicker you assign your deals, the more deals you're gonna get because the next one in lines are yours, right? But say you know everybody assigns a deal today and Monday morning comes around and three deals comes over. I'm gonna look at what are my agent's KPIs for last week? How many deals have they assigned? Are they hitting their numbers? Are they doing everything they should be on these deals? Who's doing the best on the team right now? They're gonna get the property with the biggest spread Who's doing second best, they're gonna get the second best spread. And who's doing third best, they're gonna get, you know, what's left over. Mm. So it's really performance based. Like through and through, it's performance based. The quicker you get rid of deals, the more deals you get, and the better deals you get. If there, you know, if deals come over and everybody needs one, the best person gets the best deal.
2: Yeah. So with with Eric, I know that he has Like the sales process for acquisition, like the putting them on hold for, you know, two times just to build up that, that wait time. Uh, Do you have, well, this is a two part question. Do you have a similar process for the dispo and what are some of the things that you would train on? So like. For example, with him, he's listening to the recordings, you could have done this better. What are some of the things that you're working with the Dispo managers to train them it's,
0: on? Yeah, it's pretty similar. Um, Eric helped us with our first script over here. I didn't know anything about building scripts. You know, uh, I just knew how to sell beach cruisers. <laughs> so uh, Eric helped us uh, with our first script. You know, He spent a couple of days tweaking it, gave it to me. I went over it and changed uh, everything to kind of flow a little bit better for the buyer. And after that first script, I created a bunch more. I created scripts for every single scenario for the team. I just needed that nice. structure. Um, I created a reduction script when we need a reduction to get a deal done. Um, talking to agents off the MLS, talking to wholesalers off of Investor Lift, inbound, outbound, cold calling—all that stuff is in is in a script. So it's a similar process, a similar script. We do put buyers on hold to put them on ice. Some people do that a lot more than others on my team. It's that's why you got to just train every day and figure out what's going on. So Monday mornings I like to do. So we do training every single day and Monday mornings. I like to audit just our listings in general. So, We'll just pull up the, uh, the vibe screen. It'll be me and my three Dispo agents. Now let's click on a random deal that they've sent out and they're working. I look at the title of it. I look at the body of the, the listing. I look at everything they put in an email. I look at how they send the deal out, in the CRM, how they text it, who they've called, who they've emailed, how they send it out on InvestLift. Is it put on the MLS? We look at the MLS listing, make sure that's good. So we're always tweaking our listings and our process on how we send deals out. And then on Tuesdays, we literally open every deal, see the process on every deal. What's the good and bad about this deal? What's the action on it? What do we got to do? Do we got to reduce it? Do we got to just assign it at this lower amount and move on? Is there tenant issues? Is there title issues? Everything. So every deal gets touched on Tuesday. Wednesday, we do script and objection training mm. so i used to do script training and objection training on two different days but then i realized it wasn't real life situations. so why not combine the two mm. so now we do role playing with a script and objections so you know somebody's got the script you know they're working it they're talking to a buyer you know that's doing a role play and they're throwing objections at them the whole time so it's more of a real conversation and then on thursdays we do recording training which you know, it, people think like recording training, you got to sit there and, you know, listen to the right recording. And that's the one you want to review with your team. Literally Thursday morning, I, I got in here like a half hour before anybody else. I was going to pull a few and see, you know, maybe this one's better than the other one. But it just so happened Eric got here at the same time. And we just sat here and bullshitted for a half hour. I didn't do any any pulling of any recordings. Yeah. So when my team got here, I just pulled up two random ones that were only Uh, less than five minutes long. Right. And our recording training is an hour long. Mm. So most people would say, well, how the hell can you pull up two recordings with a total talk time of seven minutes and go an hour? We went an hour and five or 10 minutes talking about those two recordings, because Mm. sometimes it's the the short recordings where you can, you know, give the most, most value of like, hey, this is what you did right. This is what you did wrong. You know, on on a recording that short, there was a lot of stuff they could have done better. Yeah. Um, And so it just depends. Like, I'll pull a half hour recording. I'll pull a 10 minute. I'll pull a two minute. Like, you know, it's different every time. And uh, we just critique and teach that um, on Thursday mornings. And then Fridays, we go over what got canceled and uh, what got assigned, why it got canceled, why it got assigned, what we can do better and what, you know, what we did good to get these assigned.
2: Dude, I love that. That's like an amazing structure to have there. It, it, last question. I'm sorry, the the when the Dispo process, what's one thing if someone's new to Dispo and they they're trying to get everything dialed in, what's one piece of advice that changed everything for you that you would suggest?
0: Your comps are your buyers, plain and simple. Your cash comps are your buyers. If there's people flipping houses in that neighborhood, there's buy and hold guys in that neighborhood that are buying cash, look at that cash data and sell to those buyers. Those are your most likely investors that want your deal. If they're in the middle of a flip, a street over, what better than to buy this one, have both their crews work in one street apart from each other. If they have a rental in the area they bought cash and is renting out, why not have another rental on, on that same street? So your comps are your buyers. Go deeper before you go wider in your cash buyer data. Instead of going six months, a year back, and then going three miles out, why not just stick to that neighborhood and go three years back and mm. see who's bought cash in this area and 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 call them and text them and try and get get on the line with them and, and sell them your deal.
1: That's great advice. That is. That's really strong.
2: I, I literally had a, a piece of land in, in the neighborhood, and I was like, how do I dispo this? And I was, like, so lost. I was reaching out to, like, different people that wanted to do JVs. And then uh, a buddy of mine was just like, why don't you look at all the ones that are already built and reach out to the builders? I'm like, oh, that makes a lot of sense.
0: Yeah. Those are the easiest ones, man, those, like, track houses mm-hmm. and uh, – in neighborhoods where there's just an open lot, yep. it's like yeah, just just call all the all the spec builders, yep. and you know they're gonna want that lot because they know it's it's just a foolproof way of them making well, they're, money. They're
1: probably looking for you, yeah. They're probably yeah. trying to figure yeah, out who who is the that, who the owner of that vacant lot is. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. It's all the data is there. Like I paid this for this lot. I built this exact house. Sold for this. Yeah, I could do the exact same thing here. Totally yeah, scalable.
2: Yeah,
1: awesome, sweet. man. Well, this has been this has been great. Really, really appreciate you spending some time with us. Yeah, man. And. Uh you can tell Eric this episode was better than his. Oh, it always
0: is. It always is. But I'll, I'll tell him, but he already knows. And uh, I do expect to get one of those nice stainless steel mugs you sent him yeah, it's, to. So. It's on its way, man. <laughs> same, same address, just different name. Don't call me Eric this time. Uh, John. Make sure you put Tony on there so uh, I get it. We and, will. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you guys. Though This was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank
2: Thanks, you, man. Brother. If we someone wants to well. connect with you, what's the best way to do so?
0: Yeah, Instagram. That's the only uh, social media I have the capacity for. So yeah. the Tony Mont on Instagram cool. is my Instagram handle. Uh, DM me, follow me. That's the way of uh, getting a hold of me.
2: Sounds good.